Did you know that within a decade, women will hold $30 trillion in investable assets? Yet somehow, only 19% of women reported feeling confident in selecting investments that align with their long-term goals. Our friends at InvestHer are out to change that. InvestHer Con is the number one premier conference for women in real estate, and it's happening June 2nd through the 4th in Austin, Texas. InvestHerCon is not just another real estate conference. It's a transformational experience focused on real estate investing, business strategies, and self-care tactics, all designed to help women take control of their financial futures. Gain the knowledge and skills you need to grow your portfolio and build a sustainable business, all while connecting with over 500 women who are playing at the same level. To learn more and to get your tickets, visit InvestHerCon.com today and use the code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. That's InvestHer, H-E-R, Con.com, promo code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. Valuation matters. And when I've seen investors, even institutional investors, get in trouble, it's when they just assume that high valuations would continue. As a loyal Best Ever listener, you know that it's important that we as entrepreneurs focus on managing our time effectively, which is why we're always looking for ways to automate the basic duties of our business so that we can focus more time on our money-making activities. That's why I want to introduce you to Rentler.com. At Rentler, landlords and property managers can perform all their duties in one place. Rentler offers tools that allow you to automate tasks like listing a unit for rent, finding and screening tenants, collecting rent, and managing the maintenance requests. And even better, these tools are offered at zero cost to you. Go to tryrentler.com forward slash best ever. That's T-R-Y-R-E-N-T-L-E-R.com forward slash best ever to get started today. Best ever listeners, how you doing? Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is the world's longest running daily real estate investing podcast. We only talk about the best advice ever. We don't get into any of that fluffy stuff with us today, David Stein. How you doing, David? I'm great. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Nice to have you on the show. A little bit about David. He produces and hosts the investing podcast titled Money for the Rest of Us. Previously, he was the chief investment strategist and chief portfolio strategist at Fund Evaluation Group, which is a $33 billion institutional advisory firm based in Idaho Falls, Idaho. With that being said, David, you want to give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and your current focus? Sure. So I spent 17 years as an institutional investment advisor, working mostly with not-for-profits, endowments, and foundation, essentially investing billion-dollar type portfolio. So Texas A&M University was a client of mine, Sierra Club Foundation. And so that was primarily in a consulting role. But about 10 years of that, I also ran a discretionary portfolio. We had the ability to choose which asset classes to invest in, which managers to invest in. So my background is really from an asset allocation background. And real estate is one of those asset classes that I've invested in. I've placed money with institutional partnerships. I've invested individually. And for the last four years, I've run this podcast, Money for the Rest of Us, just teaching individuals how money works, how the economy works, how it all connects together. We focus on investing across the board in many different asset types, but just helping individuals invest essentially their retirement assets, and, and hopefully they will have enough to live in retirement. Yes, absolutely. And when you were working with 
the billion dollar portfolios and you were consulting in that position. What do you do exactly with a university or a large group that has a bunch of money? Your first step is they typically have some type of investment policy and you'll help them structure that policy. And a big part of that is what is their target rate of return? What's their spending rate? And what should their target asset mix been. So you're typically working with some type of investment committee or board. And once they have agreement on the asset mix and the spending, sort of these strategic decisions, then you work with them to actually implement that. And that could be with public markets. It could be private markets. It could be active. It's passive. It really much depends on the clients. But within the real estate segment, so they might decide that they want to allocate 10% to private real estate. So your typical endowment is not going to go out and find an apartment building to buy. They're going to hire an institutional real estate manager in some type of limited partnership structure, and then will invest in that manager who's charged with finding apartments or finding commercial property, office buildings, things of that sort. That's how your typical endowment would invest in real estate. Target rate of return, what's typical? Well, (laughs) I left about five years ago and typical... They want to make sure these assets last forever. So a typical endowment will be spending 4 to 5% of their assets. And then on top of that, you'll have an inflation. So if you assume 3% for inflation, then a minimum return was about 8%. So you have 5% spending plus 3% inflation. That equals 8%. And ideally, they would do better than that. It's been a much more challenging environment, as you know, investing just because interest rates are so low. But that's sort of the minimum, and that's why many not endowments and foundations and pension plans are moving more toward private assets, venture capital, leverage buyouts, private real estate, because they don't feel like they can get the returns they want in the traditional public stock and bond markets. You mentioned spending rate. Will you define that for me, what that means? Sure. So let's say it's a college endowment. They'll have a typical spending policy, and they might say that we are going to spend, as they set their budget, 5% of our average market value of our asset base over the past three years. So they'll do a calculation, and they'll determine whatever. It's $20 million that we can spend based on our specific policy, and that gets pulled out of those endowment assets, and they get spent. So that's what I talk about, spending rate. It's similar to retiree, where a retiree decides they want to spend 4% of the retirement nest egg in a given year. Endowments and other institutional advisors, endowments and foundation do the same thing. They say they want to spend a certain amount of money each year based on some type of spending policy. Okay. Got it. So it's like their working capital that they're choosing to allocate towards whatever expenses they have? No, it's just more their endowment are long-term assets, so into perpetuity. And they're deciding, okay, of this huge $100 million asset base, how much can I pull out this year to spend this year on our operation? Okay, right. It's working capital. But it's just what percent of these long-term assets am I going to spend each year? Because what an endowment is trying to do is to achieve what's known as intergenerational equity. They don't want to spend too much in any given year because then there won't be enough assets for the generations ahead. And they don't want to spend too little because then the students today at a particular college are missing out. So there's a fine balance to spend enough to benefit the current generation, but to make sure those assets are there into perpetuity. Is 5% the typical amount? That was. And in fact, private foundations are mandated by law to spend 5%. 
what you're seeing in the university space, because expected returns are much lower, they're creeping down to 4% or so. The effective spending rate, because most of them have used some type of average of the value of the endowment over the previous three years, assuming markets are appreciating, that takes that net spending rate a little less than 5%. But you're seeing a push to drop the spending rates just because the average college endowment over the past 10 years, this is from the annual Kubo Common Fund Study of Endowments, they earned on a nominal basis, 4.6% over the past decade on an annualized basis. So if you're spending 5%, yeah, that's not good. Only earning 4.6, those assets are going to be depleted over time unless they find a way to either lower spending or increase the rate of return. How are they only making 4.6%? What are they doing wrong? This is over a decade. I wouldn't say they're necessarily doing wrong. That's the average. So there's about 809 endowments. Was that through 2008? Is that the decade that it covered? Yeah. So, I'm sorry. So this was 10 years ending June 30th, 2017. So it would include 2008. Mm-hmm. So you had the drawdown, you had the recovery. But over that time frame, that bond returns were low, stocks returns were low. Some of the bigger endowments did better than that, but that's just what the markets gave. Yeah. So it wasn't so much they did something wrong. I and mean, retirees, if they calculated a similar thing, they would find the returns were probably in that 5 to 6% range. As far as the asset classes, you said later you were helping choose which asset class they should invest in. I believe you said that. Is that correct? Well, with our typical relationship, you would always work with a board and you would make a recommendation and they would decide they wanted to, to invest in a certain manager okay. or a certain approach. When we ran more of a, it was called an outsourced CIO process of outsourced chief investment officer, the board would set the policy and then we would decide, okay, we want so much in US stocks. We want it with this manager. We would often work with them on the private side, but generally speaking, we had more leeway to adjust the allocation based on market conditions, essentially. Mm -hmm. So risk of recession was high or some asset class was overvalued. We would reduce exposure, not have to always go back to the committee every quarter to get them to buy into the decision. So I'm sure we've got a listener or perhaps multiple best ever listeners out there who are thinking, man, how can I be that manager where a Texas university, Texas A&M in this case, or anyone had the billion dollars or the consulting group were to pick me as a manager that they want to invest a whole bunch of money with? <laughs> well, first institutions are very risk averse. So they're not picking me's, they're picking essentially asset management firms that have been in business for several decades. So it's hard for an individual, even a small group that's done mostly retail, to get into the institutional space. So many of the institutional managers broke away from other institutional managers. And just because of how risk-averse institutions can be in allocating those assets, they look at what their peers are doing. And so the best way, I guess, if somebody wanted to get involved is to become an employee let's say a private real estate manager, start as an analyst, work their way up and sort of get part of that. And then we've seen those that have had 10, 15 years experience break off and start their own firm and then might have those relationships. And again, it comes down to performance too, in that Mm -hmm. institutions want a proven performer that has shown the ability to buy assets right, be able to improve the real estate asset and then liquidate and get it sold. 
when you said retail earlier, who's buying retail mostly, can you elaborate on what you mean by that? Yeah. By retail, the end client are individual investors as opposed to institutions. And you've probably seen this in the real estate space where you see deals that are put together, where they're trying to raise capital. Oftentimes, they're raising it from individuals in some type of structure. That's usually called retail money. Retail just because it's individual money as opposed to institutional money, which would be the opposite of retail money, which is, is big endowments and foundations. Not that one's better than the other, which is a, a different market segment. It's not that one can't make money investing in real estate and retail type deals, but that's just the distinction in terms of sort of the playing field that the various operators are operating in. I'm sure I know you learned a lot from that experience working in that position in particular, and then also just throughout your career. When you take those lessons and you apply them towards your own investing, what does that asset mix or allocation look like? Well, my personal approach is to be as many different portfolio drivers as possible in terms of I'm a risk-averse investor by nature. And as a result, I want to have public equity, but it's less than 20% of my holdings. I have fixed income. I have gold. I have cryptocurrency. I have real estate. I have venture capital. So as many different pockets, both public and private outside of the financial system, I own land. And that's just not knowing what's going to happen 10 years from now in terms of markets, inflation, government. You just never know. And so a typical endowment is just as diverse. Maybe they're not doing Bitcoin, but certainly <laughs> they're, they're trying to get, to, to get it, is the diversification. But there are many, many asset classes out there and there's many structures and I'm always experimenting. So trying to see, but at the end of the day, I'm trying to preserve capital, earn a decent return. I mean, a target rate returns only five to 6% on my portfolio. And the other thing I've learned is just to be patient. The market is what it is. And so in an environment right now for real estate where cap rates are 4 or 5%, in my mind, that's not an attractive environment to be going into equity real estate deals. The target rate of return, 5 to 6%, what's inflation? 2 to 3. So, yeah. I mean, I'm not, yeah, I'm not trying to earn much, but if I got 2 to 3. At this point, I'm just trying to maintain essentially my nest egg and keep up with inflation. So if I can earn a little bit more above inflation, I'm content. So I'm not in the accumulation phase in that sense. I sold my investment partnership. And at this point, I make enough money to live on through my podcast, Money for the Rest of Us. So I'm not in a situation where I got to have to earn enough 7 8 9% because I'm still accumulating. I'm fine earning inflation plus a point or two. You mentioned you're as diverse as possible with your portfolio. And you've, I'm sure, come across some investment approaches that didn't work or investment classes that didn't work and then some that really did. What's an example of each of those extremes? Well, I mean, let's focus on real estate because I think investing in real estate, particularly if you want to manage your own property, it's a lot of work. So there was a college town that we were living in in Idaho. I'd spent seven or eight years on planning and zoning. So I kind of knew the people. I knew how to basically what the, what the laws were. And so we found a single family home that was in a zone that could be multifamily. And we went through the process of converting it, the single family home into a triplex. You know, all the approvals done, got the, all the work done. And at the end of the day, 
I couldn't find anybody to manage the property. And I realized I don't want to be a landlord. So from not working out in terms of rental real estate, which was my idea, it's not something I enjoyed doing. And again, we had cap rates falling. So I sold it and we made, you know, 10, 15%. I mean, it wasn't a huge deal. So it wasn't flat out terrible deal, but it was sort of like with real estate or anything else, you have to figure out, well, what's my spot? Do I like to be this involved in a transaction? I didn't like the one tenant we have calling me up saying they couldn't get the internet to work or call me up on New Year's Eve and saying that they didn't have any hot water, right? It just didn't fit my lifestyle. Mm -hmm. So you contrast that with the same town, this college town. I had a friend that built a 12-plex apartment building. And what you're seeing is a lot of individuals want to take their individual retirement account, the retirement assets, and buy property with it in some type of self-directed IRA. Well, it turns out there's not that many banks willing to lend on that because you can't get a personal guarantee if an IRA buys a real estate building. So in that case, the buyer of this brand new 12-plex student housing put up 50% in equity through his IRA, and I did the debt side of the deal, and the debt was 6.5%. So my interest rate on this debt is higher than his cap rate on the building he bought. So- I like that much better because I'm just collecting the interest payment and the principal to 15 year note. So it's a very long term, but at six and a half percent, I'm quite happy doing that because of the margin of safety, because if you put up half the money. Based on your experience as an investor, what is your best advice ever for real estate investors? I think you need to be aware of valuations. I think we sometimes only focus on the last three to five years. And I'll give you an example. So there was another student housing project that I invested in, this time as a limited partner. It was a friend that was putting together and he died within six months. He got a brain tumor and passed away. And so then he didn't even get the project barely started. So they found another firm to come in and take over this student housing project and get it built. And on the conference call, when they were introducing him, they had done through all this analysis and their sort of worst case scenario for cap rate was 7%. That somehow the yield on real estate would never go above 7%, which in my mind, 10 years ago, you wouldn't touch a deal unless cap rates were nine mm-hmm. or 10. So I think that inflation can pick up. So worst case scenarios shouldn't be only based on the last three to five years. I think valuation matters. And when I've seen investors, even institutional investors, get in trouble, it's when they just assume that high valuations would continue. And you saw this when commercial properties were overbuilt prior to the Great Recession. The institutional managers that lost are the ones that paid premium prices at the top of the market. We're going to do a lightning round. You ready for the best ever lightning round? I am. All right, let's do it. First, a quick word from our best ever partners. You looking for a one-stop landlording software that helps you create listings, find and screen tenants, and accept rental payments while managing maintenance requests? Oh, by the way, it's zero cost to you. Go to tryrentler.com forward slash best ever. That's T-R-Y-R-E-N-T-L-E-R.com forward slash best ever. Looking to build a predictable and duplicatable real estate investing business? Do over 100 flips a year, whether it's flipping or wholesaling, experience a difference with the ultimate real estate investing course now, and also get a free strategy session with Dylan. He's been a guest on the podcast before. 
You can use the code JOE20 for 20% off. Everything you need to know in one course, go to www.theultimaterealestateinvestingcourse.com. Best ever book you've read? Skin in the Game by uh, Nassim Nicholas Taleb, or the best I've read recently. What's a mistake you've made on a transaction? We built a house in Idaho at the top of the market, but at $100 a square foot. <laughs> but I know it's a lightning round, but the point is that even if you build something at $100 a square foot, houses are used after eight years and it can fall to $80 a square foot. What's the best ever deal you've done? Probably the student loan debt deal on the IRA, where I'm getting 6.5% with very little risk. Best ever way you like to give back? We like to help individuals. We get the charity, but we find it more rewarding to help somebody out that needs help with a down payment for a house or needs a plane ticket to go visit family. So just helping individuals like that. And how can the best ever listeners get in touch with you? They can search moneyfortherestofus.com, Money for the Rest of the Podcast, wherever you get your podcast. So it's available all over. Well, awesome. And that link, moneyfortherestofus.com, is in the show notes. So best of listeners, you can just click that and go check out David's podcast. David, thank you so much for being on the show, bringing your depth and wealth of expertise in finances, certainly from an institutional side. It's interesting to hear how billion-dollar portfolios think about investing, what they look for. And a roundabout way or a very long, long game approach to perhaps landing one of them, as you said, you're like, "Eh, no way. Well, actually, maybe you become an employee of a private real estate manager and then get the 15 years with that group and then branch off. So it's interesting to hear that as well as just their thought process for the things they look for, the target rate of return, the spending rate, the asset mix and the conservative nature of the funds, what their annualized basis was for the last 10 years, or at this point, 10 years from June 2017, previous to that 4.6%. So thanks for being on the show. Hope you have a best ever day and we'll talk to you soon. Great. Thank you. Looking to build a predictable and duplicatable real estate investing business? Do over 100 flips a year, whether it's flipping or wholesaling, experience a difference with the ultimate real estate investing course now. And also get a free strategy session with Dylan. He's been a guest on the podcast before. You can use the code JOE20 for 20% off. Everything you need to know in one course. Go to www.theultimaterealestateinvestingcourse.com.